Let's now then take up our Bibles and turn to Acts 21. I'd like to read from chapter 21 into chapter 22. We'll start at 21, verse 27. At least in my Bible, it's on page 1,184. A bit of context here. The book of Acts, of course, is the book of the Acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles, and it contains, as a big part of this book, the four missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And at this point here in Acts 21, Paul has completed his third missionary journey, and he is then about to be arrested. As it also says in the top in my Bible here, Paul arrested in the temple. So let's pick up at verse 27 of chapter 21, and we'll read to 22, verse 22. When the seven days were almost completed, that's a seven day connected with the vow that Paul had made, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is preaching everyone is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. 
as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that, I, that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Let's now turn then to the second chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy. I hope to preach on 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. It's on page 1,263. So 1 Timothy 2, picking up at verse 1. Paul then says to Timothy, and the Spirit then speaks to us today too, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am not 
I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what is it that you mostly tend to pray for? Take just this past week, review it in your minds. What did you mostly pray for in this past week? And I ask that question because I think it's easy for us to become quite narrow in our prayers, isn't it? For example, let's say you're in a situation of life where you're starting a new business. That takes a lot of energy. There's a lot to it. And as a result, this, this new business venture tends to almost take your life over. And I say that because that also tends to take over the contents of our prayers. We have to be careful with that. Or let's say you come into a situation of conflict. Conflicts, these two, can easily become all-consuming. And therefore, they also tend to become all-consuming, these conflicts, in our prayers. It's instructive in this regard to think of Timothy and to think of Paul. Both of these individuals were often involved in situations of rather intense conflict, especially with the Jews who did not accept Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah. Think of the book of Acts. You'll find that throughout the book. You find conflict with the Jews in the city of Antioch, of Thessalonica, of Corinth, of Ephesus, and more can be added to this list. You might recall Apollos. When Apollos appeared on the scene, and that was at the end of the third missionary journey, the end of the second, the beginning of the third, when Paulus appeared on the scene, then that was a huge blessing for Paul and Timothy. And why was that? Because Apollos, too, was very well versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, and thus he was able, and here I quote, to powerfully refute the Jews in public. Now, in our passage, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he instructs Timothy in a very basic matter, the matter of prayer. He instructs Timothy about what reality especially should shape his prayers, also as he deals with conflict, and also about what specific content his prayers should have and what the content of the prayers of those working with Timothy should also have. May proclaim God's word this afternoon that under this theme, the Apostle Paul urges Timothy to pray for all peoples, especially those in authority, so that as God's people, we may live quiet and well-ordered lives. We'll see two things, the peculiar time explaining this instruction and the timeliness of this instruction. We're jumping right into 
the letter to Timothy, and probably we should orientate ourselves first of all. It's a letter of the Apostle Paul to the evangelist Timothy. Let's first start by looking at these two individuals. Paul. He first came into the scene as Stephen was being stoned to death. And this Paul became a fierce opponent of the church. And he became that at a time in which the New Testament church was just getting started, just getting its feet in the ground, as it were, at a time when the church was extremely vulnerable. And this put Paul, he didn't realize it at the time, but this put Paul in very, very deadly peril. It's amazing that our Savior from on high, our sovereign Savior, did not strike Paul down in his wrath because of what he was doing. I mention that because in his first, in this first letter of Timothy, chapter 1, Paul speaks about this. And Paul speaks about this with a real tone of amazement and with deep gratitude. And here I quote Paul, formerly, says Paul, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. And the reality that even he was mercied, that always amazed Paul, that always pushed him forward in all the work that he did. And our Lord mercied Paul for his own eternal benefit, but also to use him in a special way. Think of what our Lord said to Ananias when he was commanded to go to Paul Paul, who had just been struck with blindness on the road to Damascus. He says to Ananias, go to him, Ananias. I know you don't feel like you're worried about this man, but go to him because he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You see, since the time of Abraham, God had, you could say, restricted his saving kingdom to the nation of Israel. But that was never intended to stay that way. That was always intended to be a temporary matter. God intended to bless Abraham indeed. Why? So that Abraham in turn would become a blessing to all nations. Now Paul was radically changed. changed. Paul went from becoming a persecutor of the church to the apostle to the Gentiles. You see it also in verse 7. He says there, I was appointed a teacher of the Gentiles, literally a teacher of the nations. Now that doesn't mean that Paul then came to ignore the Jews. No, in his travels, he always went to the Jews first. That strikes you as you read through the book of Acts. At the same time, he made clear to the Jews every time again, I also have to go to the Gentiles. And that was something that really, really irritated these Jews who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And because of this, Paul became someone whom the Jews hated. And in a way, if you think about it, it's remarkable. 
these Jews, they held to the Old Testament Scriptures as we have them today too. And so did Paul. But, whereas Paul rightly saw and rightly accepted how the Old Testament testified to Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah, these Jews refused to accept that. They could not accept how the Messiah had to suffer. And this aspect of the gospel that was, as Paul later on says, it was a great stumbling block to them. And then, to add insult to injury, Paul had the audacity to say each time again that since they rejected the Messiah, now God would gather in his people from all nations. Just think of what happened when Paul got arrested in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. We just read that. By motioning his hand, Paul was able to quiet the crowds down. And by speaking in Hebrew, they quieted down all the more. And he could tell them what happened to him. And they listened with rapt attention as he spoke about what happened on the road to Damascus, what happened thereafter. They listened with rapt attention. They hung on every word he said until he came to that point in his history where he was told, where he told them that God had said to him, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So that was Paul. Now Timothy. We first meet Timothy in Paul's second missionary journey. The brothers in Lystra and Iconium, they brought this young man, Timothy, to the attention of Paul as a specially promising disciple. And Paul right away saw a lot of potential in Timothy as someone who could really help him in the unique work that had been given to him by God. And therefore Paul had him circumcised so that he could come with them into the synagogues. He even had him ordained into the ministry. And Timothy, this man, became a very key fellow servant of Paul, with Paul, to help him in Paul's special mandate that had been given to him. At times, you'll find Timothy right there beside Paul in his work. Again, I'm thinking of the book of Acts. At other times, Paul leaves Timothy behind in certain places. Why? To finish off work that still had to be done while Paul had to move on. This also explains what this first letter of Timothy is all about. It's a letter of Paul to Timothy about the work that they are both so deeply invested in. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that's where, Paul is, that's where Timothy is right now, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul sends this letter to Timothy to instruct Timothy in his work, to encourage Timothy in his work, to give him directions for how to tackle certain issues that have arisen particularly now in the church at Ephesus. And in his first chapter, 
Paul recounts how he himself came into, this, into doing this work. And then in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 1, Paul gives Timothy, you could say, a very general charge. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then in our chapter, this is our text now, Paul begins to, you could say, to particularize this charge. And he starts out with first things first. How should Timothy start? How should he start every day and every venture again? How should we, as co-workers of God today too, how should we start every time again? And the answer is, of course, in prayer. Verse 1, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, for Paul, this is clearly a non-negotiable starting point. Notice how he uses four different words for prayer here. Timothy, see to it that you and also those who are elders with you, those whom you are training, see to it that they always begin with prayer. Now, we need reminders about this every once in a while, don't we? But really, this ought not surprise us, especially if we've been in the faith for a long time. Think of our catechism. It calls prayer the most important part of our thankfulness. And it underlines to us we should not expect any blessing on any part of our work without prayer. We should always start with prayer. But Paul does not just urge Timothy to pray. He does not even urge Timothy to pray God to bless the work that is about to begin. Rather, he prays that, Timothy, that prayers be made for all people. He instructs Timothy to do that. Not just for some people, Timothy, but for all people. Now, why? Well, the answer is found in verse 3 and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We should not misunderstand this. Is it true that God wants every single individual in this world to be saved? And that we should therefore pray, we should pray that for every single individual? No. It's true. Our God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. But think about how our Savior himself prayed, and he prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Here I quote, I am praying for them, says our Savior. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So that's not Paul's point. Paul's point, rather, is this. In his saving work, 
all peoples are included. Not just Jews, but also Greeks. Not just Greeks, but also Persians. Not just Persians, but also Asians and even Americans. And given that reality, Timothy, given that reality, pray for all peoples. Now, why does Paul at this point bring this to the fore? I think it's rather evident now because of the time in which he lived. With the time of the long-awaiting, of the long-awaited Messiah having finally come, it was now also time for the gospel to break out beyond the borders of Israel to go to every nation, to go to every family, to every people group, to every tribe. As we already noted, the Jews had a very, very hard time coming to grips with this development. And the fact that they did not come to grips with this development, that would also have come out in how they prayed. But Paul, Paul, filled with the Spirit of our Savior, he's very passionate about this matter. Timothy, keep this in mind from the start. Even in your beginning prayers, Timothy, pray for all people, not just the Jews. And no, Timothy, in spite of what the Jews might say to you, this is not a betrayal of the ancient faith. Contrary to what our Jewish opponents often say, this is not a betrayal of Abraham or of Moses or of David or of any of the prophets. Neither is this in any way a betrayal of the God of our fathers. Rather, this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What does God want? What has He always wanted? That is, the answer is the salvation of all people. When all is said and done, when God has finished His salvation work, what will we see? Well, the Apostle John sees the answer to this question in a form of a vision in Revelation 7, verse 9, and he describes it. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And Timothy, this even fits with who our God is. And Paul here highlights a central tenant of Judaism, a tenant that is indeed 100% true, that we subscribe to today as well. God's people have always confessed, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, the Shema. In other words, there is no other God. He alone is God. He is sovereign. He made everything and everyone. And what has this one and only God done? 
Did he forsake his work of creation with the fall into sin? No, he came with salvation. He opened up the way of salvation. And he has provided a mediator, a mediator between God and man. Whether that man happens to be Greek or Italian or Canadian or Jew. A mediator who has given himself as a ransom, not just for one nation, but for all. Not just for the Jews, but for all nations. Jesus Christ, says Paul, he is the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of the world. That's true. That for many years, God restricted his salvation work to the Jews. But with the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, that time of restriction has passed. In the words of verse 6, following the New King James here, Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And Paul understood that's where he too had a very important role. That's why Jesus Christ took him on the road to Damascus. So that he would testify to what happened, not just to the Jews, but also to the Greeks, to all peoples, to all tribes, to all nations. And that's what Timothy was so much involved with at right now, too. Now, so many Jews failed to understand this and became increasingly offended by Paul. But Paul himself, it's very interesting to see that, Paul himself continued even in the face of all the hostility, Paul continued to appeal to these Jews. And that's because he realized what was at stake. And you can hear the heart of Paul in verse 7. He says to Timothy, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. That's what he was accused of. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. No, fellow Jews, I am not lying. Let me appeal to you. Now again, even though you're hostile to me, let me appeal to you. Please hear me out. Think of Paul in the steps there when he was arrested. That was his intent. Not to prove himself right, per se. He was appealing to all the Jews. I testify to the true and the only way. The way that is true to the Word of God, also the Old Testament. The way true to who our God is. The way true to reality. The way of faith in Jesus Christ, who has finally come into this world and has defeated sin and death. Timothy, as you interact also with the Jews in Ephesus, Press on with this appeal. Now we today live in a different time. That the gospel is for all nations. That's no longer such a scandalous matter. Something hard for us to accept. Most of us here are of Gentile origin. And we don't have to deal with the Jewish backlash like Paul and Timothy did. But still, in the grand scheme of matters, we do live in the same time. The time of the gospel going out to all nations, to all tribes, 
to all families, to all social classes. And our Savior has not has not given us unique roles like he gave to Paul and by extension also to Timothy. And yet we too, we are called to be co-workers with our Savior in his work in this world in reaching out to all nations and all tribes, particularly in these last days of redemptive history. We too were called to hold out the word of truth, to advertise the reality of this gospel, to teach it, to illustrate it, and to do so to all. And this gives these words of Paul a very modern relevance, and that's our second point. So keeping in mind then what we've just heard, let's have another look at what Paul exhorts Timothy to do. Let's do that in order to hear the Spirit speaking to us in our day as well. Just as Timothy, though not as special evangelists working for Paul, we too, we are called to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. We're called to, you could say, fight the good fight in everything that we do. Now where should we start? Every day again. Every venture again. Whether as congregation or as parents or as teachers of God's people or as tradesmen or as students, where should we start? And the answer again is in prayer. And not just in prayer for what we do, but for in prayer for all people. And the point here is not so much every single individual in this whole wide world. No, but for all with whom, this makes it very particular, all with whom we might interact and rub shoulders with. And that's regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnicity, regardless, regardless of social status. For just think, does our God not want to save people from every race and every nation? And Paul uses no less than four words here, which means that praying for all people, as we pray for all people, that's not just one little petition, Lord, be with all people, but as we pray for all people, we should pray, first of all, prayers of supplication and entreaties, that these people may receive the specific help they need in their situation. Let's say, the help of being calm in a very tense scenario, or the help of getting comfort and getting help was they're dealing with loss. And so we should pray for, we should pray with prayers of intercession for them. Even though these people might not worship God, we should intercede for them. And we should do so in light of the specific hardships they happen to be going through. In light of certain dangers they're currently facing. And we should pray prayers of thanksgiving for them. 
We should thank God that he gave them a child, that he gave them a good job or a better home or needed health care. This is fundamentally important for them, but also important for ourselves. It's important to foster within us from the start a right approach to foster within us a zeal for them to come to faith. Again, is that not the all-important matter of our day as well? There's a real urgency here, beloved, even more so than in the days of Paul and Timothy. Because the reality is this, our God alone is one. There is no other God in this world. And the one and only mediator for all people has come into this world. And he's coming again. Then it's striking how Paul, in very quick order, he moves from the matter of praying for all people to praying for kings and all those who are in positions of, high author of authority where all those who are in high positions, that is, those in positions of authority over us. And here, too, Paul used that word all. In other words, the current emperor. There's only one of those. But also all other officials. In our context, that means the federal authorities, the provincial authorities, the municipal authorities. That means Prime Minister Trudeau, that means Premier Ford. That means our MP, our MPP. That means judges. That means police officers. And he says, Paul, Timothy, pray for their welfare. And by the way, it's instructive to note that one of the emperors of that time was no one less than Nero, a wicked cruel emperor responsible for the deaths of many believers. But that doesn't detract Paul from saying what he says. And why is that? Why is Paul not detracted by that? It's because Paul, what he has, he has a wider vision. We are in the world of the one true God. And we are in the days of his gospel going to the ends of the earth. That's very important for us to keep in mind in our time too. Especially when we have trouble praying for certain rulers with whom we are so much at odds. And as we struggle with that, just think. Just ask yourself, how great is that ruler compared to our God. We shouldn't be narrow-minded in our prayers. Keep things in perspective. And notice now how Paul goes on. Why should we pray for those in authority over us? So that they come to faith? Well, that would be wonderful. And to pray for that would be very fitting. We should pray that Trudeau may come to faith. Would that not be glorious? But notice how Paul answers the question that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. 
In other words, a life where there is civil stability, where there is law and order in society, where we need not be uprooted and run and flee for our lives. Now, why does Paul want such conditions to prevail? Whether in his day or in the city of Ephesus or in our day today too, in North America. Does Paul want such conditions to prevail so that we can have our chance at pursuing the American dream? So that we too can eat and drink and be happy? So that nothing gets in the way of us taking a trip down south? No. Rather, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life Godly and dignified in every way. Now, a godly life, that's a life in living fellowship with God. That's a life that seeks to be obedient to God, both in speech and in conduct in every aspect of life. And a dignified life, that's a life that's very respectful respectful of others as being created in the image of God, respectful of institutions as ordained by God, let's say the institution of marriage or authority structures or our binary nature, and the list can go on. And Paul continues then in verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, such a lifestyle, one characterized by godliness and by respectfulness and dignity, such a lifestyle is something that is very conducive to salvation to the salvation of those around us. And is that not something that counts especially in our day? That kind of living, what it does, it testifies to this world around us about the goodness of that glorious gospel. And the Holy Spirit uses that to teach, to illustrate, to work faith, to work salvation in the lives of so many others. In a recent catechism class that I was teaching, we noted how God uses the civil authorities, even those that are far from godly, even those that we can have a lot of trouble with, God uses the civil authorities to restrain and to hold back so much evil that otherwise would break loose in our society. Well, here Paul takes that one step further. A stable civil setting that not only restrains evil, but what that also does, it provides a venue for us. A venue for us as God's fellow workers in this world not only to preach the gospel, of course that's very important, but also to illustrate the gospel. 
to live that gospel, to live it in our marriages, in our families, in our business dealings, in our workplaces, to live it online, and as such, to promote the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. Living godly and dignified lives, whether young or old, whether married or unmarried, that is so important for the gospel in this world, for the saving cause of our Savior that we ourselves have so benefited from. You know, there is nothing that supports and corroborates the true preaching and proper evangelism. There's nothing that supports and corroborates that more than godly living. Godly living tasted and experienced by those around us. Godly marriages where the husband reflects in practical everyday life the love of Christ for his church where the wife reflects the devotion of the church for her Savior. There is nothing that supports and corroborates the preaching better than godly families, where the members, the siblings, and the parents, they truly care for each other with self-sacrificial care. Again, all that in reflection and in response of our caring our loving God, the one and only God who sent his Son as our mediator. You see, Paul and Timothy, they were both ordained preachers. But not all God's people in that day were, and not all God's people in our day are either. And Paul, as a preacher, he understood the huge importance his, of God's people living godly and dignified lives. As our catechism puts it also in Lord's Day 32, by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. And that especially explains why we should pray for our civil authorities and why we should pray and plead God for a civil setting, for a context that is quiet and conducive for us to live and to function as shining lights in our world. And therefore, beloved, hear Paul. Just listen to Paul encouraging Timothy to ever start everything again with prayer, to pray for all, knowing the comprehensive salvation plans of our God and Savior, keeping that in mind, to pray especially for those in authority that we may live quiet and well-ordered lives in godliness and dignity, to pray that our godliness, that this may practically grow, that it may blossom, our godliness as individuals, our godliness as congregation, and that in this way too, we in our day too 
and in our corners of life as well, that we may serve powerfully for the advancing of the cause of our Lord, especially now in these last days of redemptive history, especially given all that our God has done for us. Again, think of Paul. I was mercied. Truly, that is the up-to-date starting point for our lives today too, in our society, in our culture, especially in our time. It's the starting point every day, every situation again. Amen.